Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Once Upon a Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Most of us at one time or another in our elementary school years got to tour a fire department. I know I remember going as a young student uh, in elementary school, and then a few years later, I got to tour a fire department again as a college student while I worked at a summer daycare program. One of the many ways the life of a firefighter is different from a civilian's life is the need to be prepared to respond to any type of emergency at any time. Firefighters are taught that when an emergency call comes in, they must be ready to roll without delay. And this is because the difference between life and death or minor loss versus a total loss of property is sometimes a matter of minutes or even seconds. A firehouse maintains what they call operational readiness at all times in at least three ways. First of all, physical fitness. Firefighters are expected to uh, routinely exercise and stay physically fit, and then they're tested to actually make sure and hold them accountable for a certain level of physical fitness so that their health doesn't hinder them doing their job on an emergency call. A second general way they maintain operational readiness is ongoing training. Firefighters uh, and fire companies routinely run drills. They take continuing education classes. They're always learning the newest and latest technology uh, so they can always be prepared for any challenge they might face out in the field. And then thirdly, equipment maintenance. Uh, Firemen habitually inspect their personal turnout gear This includes their helmet, flashlights, boots, and breathing apparatus. They set it up so all they had to do is jump into it, put it on, and go, but they check it every day to make sure there is nothing uh, flawed or falling apart or broken on their personal equipment. This also includes inspecting the fire trucks themselves. They keep the trucks in tip-top shape, always checking every part of the truck to make sure that it doesn't break down, that when they need to roll, they can roll without any problems. They also, in addition to all that, inspect the engine's tire, the engine, excuse me, the tires, equipment compartments, hose lines, water tanks, fans, all are rigorously, routinely inspected so that nothing prevents them from doing their job when they get a call. Now, obviously, it would be nice if uh, fire companies knew in advance when an emergency was coming, so they knew when they had to be ready versus when they could kind of just relax a little bit, chill. You know, it's like, ah, we, our next fire isn't until tomorrow at 8 a.m., so, you know, we're okay. We got time. But that's not possible, obviously. And for that reason, firefighters have to live in a constant state of readiness because they don't know when the next emergency call will be. And that constant state of readiness requires them to be ready 
to be interrupted no matter what they're doing at any time to drop what they're doing so they can respond to a call. Well, if firefighters can live in a constant state of readiness for their next call, how much more should Christ followers be prepared for the return of our blessed hope, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? This is the question that Jesus answers in the parable we'll be looking at today as we continue our series called Once Upon a Time. If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 12 and to pull out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder. And if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can loan one to you so that you can have a copy in front of you and follow along. We've been learning that a parable is an earthly story packed with a heavenly truth. One of the many truths that Jesus Christ wants his followers to remember is that he is coming back. And he is going to evaluate what we've done for him. Thus, our big idea for today is this, if I could sum up the sermon in a sentence and boil it down to one simple Twitter post, it would be this. Your readiness for Christ's return reveals your faithfulness to Christ's commands. Your readiness for Christ's return reveals your faithfulness to Christ's commands. Just like firefighters, Christ followers are expected to live in a constant state of readiness because they don't know when Jesus will be coming back. We are expected to be spiritually fit, to train ourselves for godliness, and to maintain operational readiness in every area of our lives because we don't know when the chief will be coming to town. Now, you might remember me mentioning in last week's message on the parable of the rich fool that what Jesus talks about on both sides of a parable, which we call context, uh, often helps us understand the purpose behind the parable. Uh, For example, before the parable on the rich fool, Jesus told a large audience to fear God because he has the authority to cast souls into hell. Next, Jesus says to deny the Lord before men will result in being denied before angels. Then in verses 22 to 31, if you see there in your Bibles, Jesus encourages his followers to seek first his kingdom and to not worry about earthly material needs. Thus, we have running throughout chapter 12 two major themes. The first being how we should think about our material needs here on earth, and the second theme being the importance of being prepared to stand before the Lord at any moment. Jesus told the parable of the ready servants that we'll be looking at today, so that we would constantly be ready for his return instead of wasting our lives in spiritual apathy. In other words, Jesus is saying in chapter 12, don't be consumed with the stuff of earth. Instead, be more concerned 
about when I'm coming back. If you would, look at the text with me. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 40. Jesus says, starting in verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the, the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here's number one, point number one on your outline. Faithful Christ followers watch for their master's imminent return. Faithful Christ followers watch for their master's imminent return. This parable breaks into two halves. The first half I just read in verses 35 to 40. The second half is in verses 41 to 48. This first half of the parable is a warning to servants or members in the Lord's church. So he's talking to all of you. The second half of the parable talks to me. So we'll get to me, all right? Now, notice he says, stay dressed for action. The Greek text actually reads, literally, let your loins be girded. Now, that sounds strange, I know, today, as we listen to it in 21st century uh, America, but it was actually an idiom that referred to the practice of tucking the ends of a long cloak, which was common clothing back in those days. They wore long cloaks or, or robes, but when they had to run or get ready to fight, men especially would, would pull up their robe and tuck it into their belt so that, in essence, it freed their legs up to run. And so it, it's the same instructions, just to give you a sense here, it's the same instructions the Lord gave to the people, the, the Hebrews, when they were in Egypt just before he helped them escape in Exodus chapter 12. It was the Lord's way of telling the Hebrews, be ready to roll when I give you the signal. Have your robe tucked into your belt and be in running mode. Okay. In this specific context, though, in Luke 12, a modern rendering of Jesus' command might be, keep your sleeves rolled up, your shoes tied, and stay busy until I return. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Next, he says, keep your lamps burning in verse 35. In first century Jewish culture, weddings were conducted at night. It was common tradition for the groom and his family to go over to the bride's house to get her and her family and then together they would form a large processional and make their way through the streets of town to the location of the wedding ceremony. 
Uh, that entourage would then conduct the ceremony along with a rabbi, and then afterwards, an enormous feast was put on to celebrate uh, the new couple. And that feast would go on into the early morning hours. Now, as is the case today, the master that Jesus is talking about here in uh, verses 35 to 40 didn't know how long he was going to be at the wedding. Just like many of you, when you go to a wedding reception, you're not sure maybe how long you're going to stay. It it would depend on your relationship with the bride and groom. Uh, You know, if you know them, you know the family, you might stay longer. If you don't know them as well, you might just make what sometimes is called a cameo appearance. You pop in, you sign a few autographs, and then you leave. Um, It it may also depend on whether the DJ is any good. Uh, It might depend on whether there are people dancing, uh, whether you like the music that's being played, or how long the drive home is, how bad the traffic is on the interstate, how tired the kids are. Many variables affect how long you would stay at a wedding. Well, in this case, the master certainly didn't know how long he was going to stay. And so when he says, keep your lamps burning, it would be the equivalent of saying, keep the lights on, don't go to bed, and stay up waiting for me. That's, that's what he was in essence saying. Don't, don't go to bed without me. Stay up. I'll be back. Next, in verse 37, Jesus says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake. Uh, blessed can also mean happy. Uh, the Greek word means blessed or happy. Uh, some translations render this, it will be good for those, or happy are those, or they will be rewarded. These are all good renderings of the original text. But what Jesus is saying here in verse 37 is, He will make it worthwhile for those servants who stay busy until he returns. He will reward them. They will be blessed. How amazing is that? Oh, and then on top of that, he says in verse 37 and 38, he will come and allow the servants to dine at his table. Totally countercultural. That was not common in those days. Normally, it was just the master and his family and the master and his friends. And the slaves would serve the master. But in this case, Jesus is saying the master would be so pleased with his servants that he would invite them to dine with him and he would serve them in return. How amazingly gracious that is. Now, it's worth noting that in certain scripture passages in the New Testament, being awake is a metaphor for spiritual alertness. Whereas, being asleep is a metaphor for spiritual apathy. So I don't want you to miss that as well in this passage. Now, in verse 38, you'll see that Jesus says, if the master comes in the second watch or in the third Uh, This is a reference to a Roman time schedule. Uh, It was considered, the second watch, according to the Roman clock, was 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch was midnight to 3 a.m. 
Now, before we move on to the next section of this passage, I want to make very clear this parable is saying something we need to get about Jesus that's often overlooked and missed. The parable of the ready servants demolishes the heresy that Jesus is some sort of pansy, passive, low-expectation Savior. To the contrary, he is a Savior with high expectations of his people. He's strong and compassionate. He's tender and tough. He's encouraging and challenging. He's patient and uncompromising. He's all that. We can't just pick the softer things that Jesus said and then shape our theology of that kind of Jesus. Go, well, we just want the half of Jesus that's soft and and tender and gentle and patient. We want that Jesus. But then ignore the other parts of his character, which are strong with expectations and sometimes stern. That would be basically throwing out a good chunk of the Gospels. Thus, when we form our perception of Jesus, we need to make sure it's based on Scripture, not our emotions, not who we want Jesus to be as opposed to who Jesus really is. We, we, we must include the soft things and the stern things that Jesus said. For example, um, Jesus never said that following him would be uh, pleasing to people, help us be more likable, or bring unity to our families. Uh, for example, in, in, he said the opposite, actually. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 38, uh, Jesus said this, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That that seems to suggest to me that Jesus is not just taking any followers. In fact, he turned some away who wanted to follow him. Uh, Take, for example, the man in Matthew chapter 8, verses 21 to 22, who came to Jesus and wanted to follow him and and said, what do I I need to do? And Jesus said, well, come follow me. But the man said, well, let me first go bury my elderly father. And Jesus' response is not compassionate. Let the dead bury the dead. Now, what he knew, because he knows all hearts, is that that man idolized his family, and that that man wanted to procrastinate following Jesus until his father died. Jesus wanted immediate obedience. Jesus wanted the man to trust him with his elderly father. He also said to another audience in Luke chapter 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That, again, sounds like standards and expectations. He then, in Revelation chapter 3, evaluates seven churches one of which is the church in Laodicea. And he says to them, because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Again, a Jesus who's stern at times, and he can be soft and tender. So, what is Jesus talking about then when he says he's coming back in verse 40? Uh, this, this basically raises the question, what is the return of the Lord? It falls into a category of doctrine that theologians call eschatology. It, it's the study of last things, is what it means. And so it's important that every Christ follower be aware and prepared for the return of the Lord. And one good reason for this is that it's talked about a lot in the scriptures. Uh, just check out some of these stats that uh, I have on the keynote screen behind me. There are 1,845 references to the return of the Lord in the Old Testament. 17 Old Testament books give this event prominence. There are 318 references to the return of the Lord in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. 23 out of 27 New Testament books refer to the return of the Lord. And overall, for every prophecy on the first coming of Jesus in the Christmas story, there are eight more verses about his second coming. So this is an important thing that believers need to know. Now, one such New Testament reference to the return of the Lord comes from Jesus himself. And it's his letter A on your outline. Jesus promised to return for his followers. This comes from John 14, 3. It's the same passage that that song we just sang came from. The way, the truth, the life. Well, in John 14, Jesus was having the Last Supper with his disciples, and just a few hours before he would be arrested and crucified, the disciples were nervous. They were scared to have him leave. They didn't understand what was going on. And so they were noticeably troubled by his impending departure. So Jesus encouraged them by saying, and I'm paraphrasing here for the sake of time, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And then I will come back to get you and take you to where I am. What a wonderful promise that is. Jesus is making a place for me given his resources and abilities, I'm assuming it'll be a really nice place. And then he's going to come back and get me? So the encouragement that's in this doctrine of the return of the Lord is that the return of Christ reveals his ability to sympathize with one of our greatest, deepest needs, and that is to be united with him. That we need to be with him. We were designed and created to be with him. And so through a personal relationship with him, he wants to take care of that problem of separation and reunite us with him so we can have uninterrupted, intimate fellowship with him, just like Adam and Eve had in the garden with the Lord. Here's letter B. Paul also proclaimed the rapture of all believers. Paul gave a little more detail. What's this going to look like? The Thessalonians were concerned that they had missed out on the return of the Lord. And so Paul encourages them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where Paul described with some detail what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And so he writes this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What a wonderful, amazing day that will be when that happens. Now, if you thought Jesus' first coming in the Christmas story was a big deal, just think about this. When Jesus was born on a starry night in Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2, only the shepherds heard the music the angels made to announce his arrival. But when Jesus arrives for a second time, the whole world is going to hear the music announcing his return. There will be no doubt that he has arrived, and everyone will know. So, once again, there's some more encouragement, I think, embedded in the text here. And that is that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you may not have to wait until death to see him. He may come for you first. You may see him face to face before you die. Another encouraging truth in the rapture is that the Lord's purpose in coming. It's part of a larger, grander story and plan of redemption and judgment on earth. And so Jesus sees coming back in the rapture to get believers out of here, off earth, because the next eschatological event that follows is a seven-year great tribulation in which he pours out his wrath on earth. So your readiness for Christ's return reveals your faithfulness to Christ's commands. Next, let's look at verses 41 to 48, the second half of the parable. And so Peter, always having great questions, always, always speaking up for the rest of the group, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us, or is this for all, everybody? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put, with, and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. 
The second half of this parable has given many commentators fits as they've tried to interpret it. Some lightly skip over it, much to my surprise. In my own research, I I found a couple commentators that I rely on just sort of skipped over it like a rock across the pond. And I went, wait, 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 wait a minute. Jesus just said he's going to slice up some ministers. What's going on? You can't just ignore that. Like, hello. And then other commentators that I rely on that did address it, two of them agreed sort of on what it meant, and then the others didn't. And so I went, oh, come on, this is, what do, we, what do I do with this? And so, to their defense, this is arguably one of the most difficult parables to interpret. And probably some of the most difficult verses to interpret in the New Testament. But here's what I think, after much prayer and study this week, here's what I think is the most probable interpretation. And this is number two on your outline. Faithful Christian leaders work for their master's imminent return. Faithful Christian leaders work for their master's imminent return. The second half of this parable is a warning to managers or ministers in the Lord's church. In verse 42, if you look at your Bibles, manager, and then he says, set over his household. Uh, This is the first clue that Jesus is talking about those who have been trusted with leadership in his church. Uh, Manager comes from the Greek word for someone who was a steward or a... um, what would have been called back in those days, the head of house. Uh, In Jesus' day, it was common for the master to appoint a head slave or a house manager who oversaw the rest of the slaves and took care of the master's business. The household that's mentioned here in verse 42 is a metaphor for the Lord's church. This view fits in the context of verses 35 to 40, because verses 35 to 40 are about servants of the house or members of the Lord's church. So verses 42 to 48 are about the manager of the house or the leaders of the Lord's church, such as pastors, elders, and deacons. Now, in total, there are four different church leaders mentioned in these verses. The first leader is sent to heaven, and the last three are condemned to hell. Let's take a look. Letter A, faithful, believing leaders will be crowned. Faithful, believing leaders will be crowned. The accomplishments of this first leader are back in verse 42. Notice it says, he is faithful, and wise. Notice it doesn't say that he was successful, intelligent, famous, beloved, good-looking, ugly, wealthy, poor, or had a large ministry or a small ministry. It just says he was faithful and wise. This is all Jesus expects from his leaders. Just be faithful and do what I've called you to do. 
So if the, if the Lord has given that leader oversight responsibilities of a small ministry, the Lord just wants them to be faithful in that. If it's a large ministry, great. But faithfulness, if you notice in the text, gets that leader oversight in the kingdom. He will be given responsibilities in the kingdom because he's been faithful with little on earth. 1 Peter chapter 5 also says those who have faithfully labored for the Lord will receive, quote, an unfading crown of glory. Uh, you've heard me teach before about uh, the rewards that Jesus will give out in crowns to certain believers uh, when they stand before him someday. Well, one particular crown that he's going to give out is a crown for those who serve faithfully in the ministry knowing what they had to put up with and go through. Now, verses 45 to 48, 45 to 48, excuse me, strongly suggest there will be levels of punishment in hell just as there will be levels of reward in heaven. Here's letter B. Rebellious, unbelieving leaders will be condemned and dismembered. Now, I need to apologize. Uh, after sending my sermon outline to the printers, I realized letter B looked less severe than letter C and D. And that just didn't sit right. Because all letter B said is that they're condemned. Whereas letter C and D say condemned plus something. And so letter B, which is verses 45 to 46, is supposed to represent the most severe punishment. And then it goes down in severity as we work our way through the verses. Uh, I'll update the sermon note handout that goes on our website on Tuesday. So these two verses are quite shocking, uh, verses 45 to 46. What do they mean? Uh, that, that, that Jesus is going to cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful? Well, Jesus seems to be referring to a pastor or spiritual leader in a church who proves he is not genuinely saved by abusing his authority and engaging in all sorts of sinful behavior, which are listed there in the text. And because of the harm such a person can do to the Lord's church, the consequences are severe. Jesus doesn't play games. He does not extend mercy to someone who misrepresents him and misleads people with false teaching. Now, when Jesus says the leader will be cut into pieces, is he speaking literally, literally, excuse me, or figuratively? I think probably literally. And here's why. The Greek word that Luke uses here is dichotomeo. It's the same word we get the English dichotomy from. It, is, it, it refers to a cruel method of punishment used in Jesus' day that involved cutting a person in two. Uh, the Hebrew version of this word is used in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when the prophet Samuel cut King Agag in two because King Saul did not complete his job. 
That's another shocking passage. A prophet of the Lord slaying King Agag and his men. Notice it says then in the text that Jesus says, he will be put with the unfaithful. This means that false teachers will be sent to hell with the rest of those who rejected Christ's offer of salvation through repentance and faith. This also fits what Jesus said would happen to false teachers in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, If you want to jot this down, there's another reference, Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. Jesus describes false teachers in Matthew 7, 15 to 20 as a type of tree, and that you can discern who they really are by their fruit. And he says, they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So again, stern words from the Lord. Next, letter C. Verse 47 describes apathetic, unbelieving leaders who will be condemned and severely chastened. Letter C, apathetic, unbelieving leaders will be condemned and severely chastened. This third manager over the Lord's household, or the church, is a spiritual leader who knew what Jesus expected, but also proved he was not genuinely saved by failing to act on the knowledge he had. This correlates with what the rest of the New Testament teaches about the relationship between faith and obedience. Faith should lead to obedience, and obedience is evidence of saving faith. And because he misused his influence and led others astray with his apathy, this leader is also punished and condemned like an unbeliever. Letter D. Naive, unbelieving leaders will be condemned and lightly chastened. This is in verse 48. We're not told whether this fourth leader lacked the knowledge of God's will because it was withheld from him or uh, because he didn't seek it. Probably the latter. He just he didn't seek it. But still, his naivete doesn't get him off the hook. You can see how Jesus doles out punishment based on the amount of knowledge each leader had. The greater knowledge of God's will... And then failure to do so leads to more severe punishment. Regardless, this guy still did things that, according to verse 28, deserved a beating. Some translations render this, he did things worthy of punishment or things deserving punishment. So naive, unbelieving leaders will be condemned and lightly chastened. Your readiness for Christ's return reveals your faithfulness to Christ's commands. How do we apply this parable? A difficult one to hear and a difficult one to interpret. Luke eleven twenty eight is where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And certainly, I know I want to be blessed, and I know you want to be blessed by the Lord. It's so that necessitates us talking about application. What do we do with this? How do we keep God's word in Luke 12? Well, here's the first application that comes to mind, and it's given to us in verse 40. Be ready. It was easy for me to write this one, 
probably the shortest application I've ever written in a sermon. Be ready. And I'm grateful because the scripture text doesn't always give us the application, but in this case, it's explicit. Jesus gives it to us. He tells a story, then in verse 40, gives the application. Be ready. But what does that look like? Uh, what, what, does that, what does that mean? Well, it's, I think it's similar to getting your affairs in order when the doctor tells you the diagnosis is terminal and you don't have much time to live. Such a verdict would affect every area of your life and create a, a level of urgency because you know there's a deadline coming very soon now. And so it should be with the return of the Lord. For those who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, the first step to getting ready is to repent of your sins and to uh, trust in Christ alone for your salvation. The Lord's imminent return is a reminder that you don't have forever. That procrastination is not a good idea. That telling God, you know, I'll get to that later. I'm really enjoying doing life on my own here, doing my own thing. The imminent return of Christ is a reminder that there's going to be a day when it is too late. You will not have any more time to repent and to trust Christ. Now, for those who do know the Lord, we should make sure that things like our finances have been brought under his lordship, that our holiness is where it needs to be, or at least we're striving to grow in holiness, um, that, that, that we're worshiping him faithfully, that our relationships are in line with his word. Uh, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you should long for his return and look forward to it. Just like a dog waits by the front door for his master, or like children waiting at the airport for their father who's been away on a military deployment. Do those choke you up like it does me whenever you see those videos on the news of the dad who's like, goes to his, he's been away on deployment and then he, he, he disguises himself as a mascot at his son's baseball game. And every time I see those, it's just, it's just strange moisture coming out of my eyes. I don't know what this is from. But I, I just empathize with the dad who was away and then the kid who missed his dad, that separation, the anticipation of being reunited. It reminds me of the Lord coming back. We should long for the Lord's return, just like, just like those kids long for their daddy to come home. Before Jonathan Edwards went home to be with the Lord in the mid-18th century, he was known for many great works, including a long list of resolutions that he made during his lifetime, or a list of goals. I think he captured in one sentence what it looks like to be ready for the Lord's return when he wrote this, I'm resolved to never do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And I know that sounds difficult to, to, to live your life like that, but it's possible. If you walk with the Lord and you lean on his grace and depend on his spirit, he can help you live that way. He can help you live a life of very few regrets so that when the Lord comes back, you're, you're hopefully not ashamed of anything. You're not embarrassed that you got caught off guard. 
And so the imminent return of Christ, should, it should provide us all with the motivation to please him and an anticipation to see him again. As if the grace that he showed us in the gospel wasn't enough. But the fact that he's coming back and he's going to evaluate us. Here's the second application um, that comes to mind. This was a little more challenging to come up with, but I needed to not ignore the second half of the parable. And so here's my best attempt at applying the second half. Listen to church leaders who tell you the hard truths of God's word. Listen to church leaders who tell you the hard truths of God's word. Why? Because as you can see in verses 30, 43, excuse me, and 44, they are trying to please the one who has the authority to cast into hell. And they're trying to help you do the same. And if they don't do their job, like the last three did in letters B, C, and D, if they don't do their job by telling you what God's word actually says, they have to answer to the Lord. And his standards are high. In Luke chapter 10, verse 16, you might want to jot that cross-reference down, Luke 10, 16, Jesus tells his disciples this, quote, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The, the Lord was obviously trying to encourage his disciples and ministers by reminding them not to take rejection when they preach personally. But unfortunately, this is easier said than done. When One of the hardest parts of my job that breaks my heart and brings me to tears often is seeing people drive over the proverbial cliff committing spiritual suicide with me telling them, don't do it. And it's a nightmare I relive over and over again in slow motion where I have pleaded with them and pleaded with them with the scriptures open and yet they harden their hearts and they, they throw accusations at me and find reasons to blame me or blame shift or excuses of why not to listen to me. All the while, I see them driving over a cliff and they don't see it. Only to see them end up down in a ditch or in the gully, knowing they're going to answer to the Lord and I tried to stop them. When people don't like what God's word says through the preacher, whether it's from the pulpit or in a private one-on-one -on -one session or one-on-one -on -one counseling or in a meeting, they often lash out at the preacher because they can't lash out at God. That's where the saying, I think, came from. Don't shoot the messenger. It's because sinners like to shoot messengers or punch him in the eyes or in the gut because we don't like what you're saying. And that certainly happened to the prophets in the Old Testament when God dispatched them. They got beaten. I think of Jeremiah. I think of Isaiah. The Lord's people didn't like what those two prophets were saying, so they punished the prophet. Tell us what we want to hear. 
So the, so the prophet or the minister is stuck in a very difficult position. Am I going to please people and tell them what they want to hear, or am I going to please God? If I choose to please God, I have to deal with people taking out their anger on me. If I choose to please people, i got to answer to the Lord and his wrath. As you can see here in the text. Now, at the same time, the flip side of this coin is you should avoid listening to church leaders who just tell you what you want to hear. That is cancer for the soul. Because you could be listening to one of the false teachers whom Jesus plans on sending to hell. Three out of the four condemned to hell, beaten or dismembered. I didn't write it. He, he said it. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that the day would come when people no longer want to hear the truth. So they will surround themselves with preachers who will, quote, tickle their ears instead. Now, the root difference, and you need to know this, if you strip away all the layers, it has nothing to do with seminary education, gifting, or anything like that. The root difference down at the very core of things between a true teacher and a false teacher is in who they fear. As you saw in the parable, the true teachers fear the master, while the false teachers fear men. And so, countless times in my ministry, I have had to wrestle with that decision, that, that proverbial fork in the road. Okay, Carrie, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to fear? Excuse me. Are you going to fear men, or are you going to fear the Lord? Do you want to please men, or do you want to please the Lord? If you try to please men, you're going to answer to the Lord. If you try to please the Lord, men are going to hate you. This couple's going to leave the church. They're going to say things about you that aren't true. Because you told them things from the scripture they didn't want to hear. And it does times feel like a no-win situation. So be careful. Listen to church leaders who tell you the hard truths about God's word. And avoid listening to those who just tell you what you want to hear. That is a sign of spiritual maturity. If you can get to the point where you really, really want to know what does God's word say about this issue and I'm willing to do it, as opposed to what a lot of sinners do, unfortunately, is they go and they seek counsel from someone who will tell them what they already have decided to do is okay. Well, in early 1942, during World War II, some 200,000 Japanese troops descended on the Philippines and they forced U.S. troops to withdraw. Before doing so, the commander of U.S. forces, General Douglas MacArthur, promised the discouraged Filipinos, I shall return. A little more than two years later, in 1944, General MacArthur returned for the second time to reclaim the Philippines for Allied forces. After arriving, he announced in a public address to the people of the Philippines 
This is the voice of freedom. People of the Philippines, I have returned. MacArthur, since, in the decades since, and he passed away in 1964, was admired for keeping his word as difficult as it was in a very complicated war with many fronts to be fought. But it earned him a ton of respect as a leader. Now, if we can admire the credibility of a fallible man who kept his word, how much more should we trust the word of the God-man who kept every promise he's ever made, including resurrecting himself from the dead? So if you struggle to believe that Jesus will return again, struggle no longer. If you believe he resurrected himself in the past, then you have no reason to doubt he will return in the future. Which means you need to be ready. Because your readiness for Christ's return reveals your faithfulness to Christ's commands. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, there are things that Jesus says that are very disturbing. They, they shock us to the core. Perhaps it's because very few authors and teachers cover passages like this, just as I experienced as I did my research. It just seemed as though half the commentators I consulted didn't want to touch these verses. But Lord, please, we, we ask that by your grace and by your spirit, you would help the verses we study today to sink into our hearts and to change us. Or, or as, as Paul wrote in Romans 12, Lord, please transform us and renew our minds so that what we believe about Jesus would be in line with the scriptures. And so that what we believe about him is true. It's not some half-truth or half of his character that we like. Father, I, I just want to pray for anyone listening today who does not yet know Christ as their Savior. Perhaps they've been putting it off, procrastinating it, thinking they have a lot of time to deal with that later. Please, Lord, would you just grip their hearts and convict them of their sin, but also, Lord, show them your great mercy and grace that you've made available through your Son and bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to pray for those who, who do know your Son, but perhaps have become apathetic and lazy in their walk with you. Lord, please, would you stir in their hearts a Holy Spirit conviction that enables them to make changes in their lives. To, to, to get their affairs in order so they are ready for you to return at any time. And finally, Lord, we just thank you and praise you for the blessed hope 
that your son is coming back. That, that, that he's coming back to make things right that are wrong on this earth. And he's coming back to rescue us before pouring out his judgment on this earth. Thank you, Lord, for that great hope, that living hope, that things are going to change. They will not always be the way they are today. We praise you for that. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.